All right. Um, <laughs> this morning we're going to continue our study in Acts, and we're going to jump straight into things. We are finishing the story of Stephen. Although the story doesn't end, the effects of the story doesn't end, we're moving on um, beyond his death. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about his life. Today, we're focusing on how he died and the importance and the significance of that for us Christians, right? So before we begin in the reading of scripture, I'm going to ask if you'll pray with me and we pray that God's word speaks to us in today's, in today's message. Let's pray together. Father, today, we thank you that your word is before us, that it is living and breathing in front of us, Father, and that we see it, we take it, we embrace it, and we let it impact us the way that you would have it today. Father, let us not put up walls. Let us not, let us not shy away from the conviction that it might cause in our life, in our heart, God, and let it change us today. Let it change us for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today's focus is Stephen. And we're going to, we're going to read a, a few verses from last week. You remember last week, we had 53 verses. And uh, we read all 53 of those. And we talked about all 53 of those, right? Today, we don't have as many. All right? But um, it is referencing what we studied last week. Stephen's sermon was last week where he stood before uh, the Sanhedrin, right? He stood before all these Jewish leaders who were ultimately trying to intimidate him, right? Um, and say, so, so are these things true that people are saying about you? Well, what, are, what were people saying about him? How did he get to that point? How did he get in front of all the Jewish leaders, right? The Sanhedrin thought it important enough Right? These were all the Sadducees and Pharisees, the political people of the Jewish time, those that had all the pull. Um, they thought it important enough to get all together and to, to ultimately try to intimidate this man named Stephen, who was just the plain old guy. If we go back to, ver or to chapter 6, we find out uh, a little bit about Stephen. In fact, we're introduced to Stephen for the very first time. Stephen is just this normal guy who gets called uh, by the church, the congregation, to step up and fill a need in the church. If we can remember, you were here, or if you've, if you've read in the scripture, there was this need that came up in the church. It was a brand new church, but the church was blowing up, right? And all these things were happening, and it was growing. But once you, the bigger the church, the more needs that are there. And there were the 12 apostles, the apostles that were the, the leaders in the church at this time, and they were the ones that were charged with the studying of the word, the praying of the word, right? Or praying to God about the word and the teaching of the word and praying for the people. So their, their, their core charge was to, do, to be the leaders in the church and the teachers of the word and the ones that are so prayer-filled and prayed up for the church. In, that, in doing that, understanding that, there are needs in the church that needed to happen, that needed to be met. One of the needs in the church, especially in that culture, were the widows. Widows of the time were uh, completely dependent upon, let's, let's go back, the women of that time were completely dependent upon their husbands or their families to provide uh, for them, whether it be food, shelter, what have you. 
And if the husbands would die um, and they didn't have any immediate family, then those women would literally starve to death often because they had no one to support them in that culture of that time. Well, the church stood up and met that role. The church had a ministry that would meet the, that need. But there were two different types of, of people, right? There were the, um, the Hebrew Jews, those that were from that area, and then there were the Hellenistic Jews, is what they call it, the Greek, right? Those that weren't essentially from the area and that spoke predominantly Greek and that had the, the, the Greek culture uh, in them. So there were kind of a, a divide in the church. Well, there was a need that rose, and as we've talked, the devil likes to try to pry from the inside out. It's so impactful when things from the, uh, from the outside hit us and hurt, and the devil can attack that way. But the, the, the pains that hurt the most, and I bet most of you, if not all of you, have been in this, are the ones that are from the inside out. You understand what I'm saying? When something happens within our family, when something happens within our church that tries to divide our family, tries to divide our church, when people within that circle uh, are impacted to try, to try to break away from one another, that is the most, oftentimes, the most impactful that Satan can be. Well, this is one of those situations where the need rose from the inside because they were saying, hey, you leaders in the church, you're giving all the grain and all the needs to the widows over here that are the, 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 the Hebrew believers, and you're not giving the ones to the, the Hellenistic Jews. We're not getting it. It's not fair. There's a favoritism there. This is awful, and, and, and ultimately it could have caused separation in the church. But where there was obstacles. We saw opportunity. God's people saw opportunity, so they took advantage of the opportunity to uh, divvy out leadership to other men in the church, and they selected seven men that would be deacons, essentially, even though that's not uh, said that in this chapter later in, uh, in the letters they're referred to as deacons. Selected deacons to be overseers of needs to be, okay, well, you make sure that these people get equal amounts of grain, these needs are met, these needs are met, needs are met. They ultimately become the hands and feet, the servants, which is the same translation of that Greek word, deacon and servants, exact same thing. They begin the ones that are going out and being the hands and feet while the, while the apostles are the prayers, the ones that are, the, that are grounded in prayer and that are studying the word so that they can effectively teach the word. And that's how you get a lot of the structures in churches, right? Elders in the, in the church, in our church, their core charge of elders of Owingsville Christian Church are to be the ones that are heavy and focused in prayer and studying of the word and understanding of the word so that the uh, deacons, deaconesses, and servants in the church can be the ones to go uh, meet the needs in the church. And that's how it's supposed to be structured and laid out. Okay, all that said to be said this, Stephen was one of those seven deacons selected. Stephen wasn't just one of those, he was the first one identified, and a lot of biblical scholars say that Stephen was the leader of the deacons. But Stephen was just a normal man. 
but he was a man that was upright, that was full of power and grace and faith. He was a man that loved Jesus. Just a normal guy, but loved Jesus. And he met the qualifications that they set out, and he was selected to be one that oversees the divvying out of the grain or whatever. Well, he took it to the next level. Not only did he go and be the hands and feet of the church, he was the voice for Jesus Christ. He was sharing the gospel in such a way that people were taking notice of this normal guy sharing the gospel, and the Jewish leaders said, all right, we got to stop this guy. Here's another one of those Jesus freaks that are going out and saying these things. We got to stop it. We got to nip this in the bud before it keeps growing and growing, and we're going to make an example out of him. So he, they bring him in, surround him by, and they say 70, about 70 men of Sadducees, Pharisees, all the political bigwigs. And he's literally at a lower level looking up at them. And for most people, and for me, I'm sure, and you as well, we will be intimidated by all the decision makers of our lives. How our life would go, not just our lives, but our families. Any decision they make can make a huge impact on us. So if we stood before them, and they're looking down at us, and scripture says they stare, they were staring at him intently. Not just looking and glancing at him, all right, what are you gonna do? But they were like, they were giving him the look, right? And they were trying to intimidate them, not just with um, words, but with action. And with their posture that they had in looking at him. But Stephen, being a man full of faith and strength, and being one of the most courageous men that we're ever gonna hear about, read about, stands up and he gives them a powerful sermon. He doesn't justify, let me go back, he doesn't try to make excuses before these men. He doesn't defend himself, but instead Stephen stands up to the Jewish leaders and preaches. He preaches the gospel in a way that probably is most effective. You know, and so many times when you speak, it's so very important to consider your audience. When you're talking to someone, it's important to understand who they are when you're talking to them. For instance, if, you, uh, if you're talking about your political beliefs, and you're talking about how much you despise our president, it's probably important if you know that the other person is not the best, most, biggest fan of Donald Trump, right? There you go that would immediately probably start a fist fight in our current age, right? You are not going to, you need to know what the other person believes before you come up to them and start a conversation, especially if it is one um, that is going to cause controversy. In a scenario like that, any type of scenario that we're talking about, it's important that we understand what the other, who the other people are. Stephen understood who the other people were when he talked. He, he didn't just preach about things that he did and things he's seen. He preached scripture to them. Hold up. Why would you preach scripture to the men that are the most well-studied men in the scripture in, the, in any, any area around the land and in the land? What are you thinking? Why would you try to preach to them what they know more of what you know? 
And Stephen preached it in such a way that caused them, and his intent was this, to have a different perspective on things that are ingrained in their minds and in their hearts. They knew the scripture better than anyone, but just because you know it doesn't mean you understand it. And just because you understand it doesn't mean you can find application in it in your life. Knowing is one thing. Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom of the word is something totally different. They were, not, they were highly knowledgeable people, but they weren't wise and full of wisdom because Stephen, as the scripture said, was full of wisdom because he was so full of the spirit. He saw the scripture in the way it should be seen and not out of context or in their own little circle like the Sanhedrin did. So Stephen gives them in a message that is in a way to see the word the way it needs to be seen that they haven't seen before. So, there's your history lesson that leads us up to that point. That was a lot, that was a mouthful, but now we're at the point of the finishing of Stephen's sermon. He calls him out, and now here's what happens. Here's the result of what happens. And I think, church, if we don't just look at this as like, oh, Man, that's awful. I can't believe he died for Jesus. Man, we need more people like this in the world that will step up for Jesus, even in the face of their death, their imminent death. I think we should say, okay, I see this example of this man who was courageous enough in the face of adversity to still be Christian, to still have a faith that spoke so loud that would cause a ripple effect on a man named Saul who would become the greatest missionary ever because he didn't convert a single person. In Stephen's sermon, we, know, we do not have any evidence that even though it was an impactful sermon, he, he converted, converted zero people, obviously, in that moment. But he planted seeds, especially harvest or planted a seed that would be harvested later when Saul is on his road to Damascus and he sees this this vision of Jesus and becomes Paul this is so important at any rate let's take this for the content or for the for the application it is in our life how many times have we stepped back from our faith so we wouldn't offend anyone how many times have we stepped back from our faith so that we wouldn't be that one person that causes any uh, adversity. Because all of our friends don't believe that. My people in my workplace, I better tone down my belief in Jesus Christ because they don't do that there. How many times? And I think we all can find many times in our life where we've taken a step back instead of a step forward like Stephen did. In this, here's what happens. Not only did Stephen share this sermon, here's what, he's, here's what he says at the very end of his sermon. He says this. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. No, Acts chapter 7, sorry. We're not going back there. You don't want that. That's a lot, right? All right, Acts chapter 7. Let's go back here and let's talk about what he says in verse 51. Verse 51, here's what he says. He not only tells in the scripture, here's what he, ta- he, he, here's what he calls them. You stiff-necked people. You uh, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. How offensive would this be to the ones that are examples to everyone? You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestor not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one 
whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, yet you have not kept it. He is saying, here you are, have studied the law for years and years, and you have done exactly what you, what you said you wouldn't do. History's repeated itself. Not only have you defied righteous ones selected by God, like Moses and Joseph, and we see in the past, you have now repeated history, and now you are guilty of the same thing that those men did, that your ancestors did. You are murderers, not just of anyone, but of the righteous one. You are murderers of Jesus, God in the flesh. Imagine if you were receiving, standing there, and you were part of the Sanhedrin, who've committed your entire life to knowing and understanding who the righteous one would be and all the prophecies foretold, and now you have been, you have been accused of murdering God in the flesh. When they heard these things, here we are with our scripture today, when they, the Sanhedrin, those leaders, are standing listening to Stephen, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They were enraged, and they gnashed their teeth at them. The gnashing of, their, of, of teeth. Remember the reference that Jesus would talk about? They will be full of gnashing of teeth and weeping. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus, seven different times, talked about this place. He talked about hell. In hell, there will be full of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said that. This is happening. is like hell on earth. These men are so mad that they are embodying what it's going to be like there. They're, the teeth are gnashing. They're furious. They have been enraged at him. And these prominent men, the ones that are supposed to be the role models for all the religious people, right? They're the ones that are now the embodiment of what hell would look like. That is such, such a flip of the script, I guess, of what you would expect. But here they are, so mad that their anger got the best of them. Their anger got the best of them. And then verse 55 says this, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, as they're mad and they're enraged and gnashing their teeth, and you can just imagine the scene, he gazed into heaven. While these men are ready to kill him, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So, so here they are furious and Stephen throws that proverbial icing on the cake. Now, here you are looking like hell, and I see heaven, right? Heaven's opened up, and not as Jesus. And so many times in Scripture, we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not sitting. He's standing. He's standing at the right hand of the Father, saying, wow, this, this is the man that we need to be examples of, right? He is the one standing there embracing Stephen and what he's about to do, standing up at the right hand of God. So, so at this point, they can't take it anymore. 
These men can't take it anymore. They have nothing to say. So here's what they do. Look at what they do. They yelled at the top of their voices, screaming at him so that they could drown him out. They covered their ears and they rushed at him. They lost their cool. They lost their minds. They lost their religion and they, they screamed and they became just completely illogical, covered their ears screaming and ran at him, rushed at him. The same word, and that word ran or rushed, the Greek is the same word that uh, that mad rush of the herd of swine into the sea. You remember that in Mark chapter 5? That's the exact same word that these swine lost their minds and ran off to their imminent death. That's the exact word that these men in the Sanhedrin, they ran, rushed just completely blindly at what they were doing and ran at this man. And they yelled at the top of their voices. Not only they ran, when they got there, they dragged him. The scripture says in verse 58, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. That breaks all their laws, right? In the, in the Meshna, or the, the Jewish rule book, essentially, of how they're supposed to do trials and whatnot. That man didn't have a trial or anything. He immediately just, they, they, they skipped all those steps, broke their own laws, that they preached in their life, and they drug him out to the city and stoned him. Now, these weren't just any stones. They weren't just some gravel out of a gravel pit we find in about the size of our hand. In this, they're the biggest stones that they could pick up, essentially, and the biggest ones that they had enough strength to throw at this man. And they killed him. But in the process of doing this, while doing that, they took uh, the witnesses, laid their garments of, at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is so important that he's brought up here because it's not only as um, many people anticipated he would be there, it's confirmation that he's here in that 70 men or so, that Saul is in that presence and he is one that the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of Saul. He essentially was the supervisor of what was going on. He was overseeing the operation of a man killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. That is such a flip, right? He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but overseeing the execution, essentially. While they were stoning Stephen, look what happens. Stephen doesn't just get hit with a few rocks and die. Look what Stephen does. He's not in this feeble uh, position. Instead, he says this. He cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, cried out with a loud voice of all things to be said. Look what he said. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Or some scripture versions say, some versions say he went to sleep. And that's a correct translation because his entrance into heaven, as many scholars would say, was almost was immediate because as the heavens opened, he was received into, into the arms of Christ. God heard Stephen's prayer. And I want you to think about this. So many times in our life, 
And Stephen died for a cause. Yeah, but what cause? Nobody was saved in his sermon. Nobody's life was changed right there. It's just a good story to tell. This is a good story to tell because we want to have that kind of courage and stand up for Jesus, even if we have no fruits of our labor. But the fruit of our labor often doesn't come immediately. Man, I've been living this Christian life. I've been, I've been praying for my husband. I've been praying for my children, my wife. I've been trying and, and asking them to come to church with me and trying to get my family to be believers in Christ as well, but they're just not giving in, so I'm, I'm giving up. And instead, this is evidence that seeds get planted. And when seeds get planted, the more and more we care for that, the more and more we water that, the more and more we give that the nourishment that it needs, that ultimately, down the road, something amazing is going to happen. Because in this scene, Saul gets the message of Jesus Christ. And I think in such an impactful way that it's working on his heart, working on his heart. Don't ever think that your actions in your life as a Christian shows no fruit for your labor. Share the good news in a way that it doesn't, that your immediately fruit is not what you're searching for. That you know God's plan is working through you. And Stephen died for not just any cause, but for an amazing cause. That we still today, in this day, in this moment, are talking about it. Look at that legacy that he left. Stephen's legacy? Wow, he's nobody. He is a nobody. He's not this super guy that had this super lineage coming up and that lived a life in political power and had, it could change. He had nothing. He's just a normal guy that believed in an amazing God. And because of him, we're still talking about what he did. And because of him, lives are still being changed. Lives are still changing because of his obedience and his courage. As the worship team comes up, I want to share some things. There's this truth that we, we oftentimes think that lives in, in the background of our life, of this faith we have. This truth of salvation, this expectation, okay, that I have this promise that when I die, I believe I'm going to go to heaven and I hope that it's true. All right, I'm going to live this good life. So I'm going to try to check this box. I'm going to try to check this box. And ultimately, life is going to be all right because of it. Listen, we live a life that we try to, to live up to expectations of the world. But there's something that I, that I want you to know. God can never love you more than he loves you right now. Listen, God cannot love you more than he loves you right now. I don't care if you go out and you start at, at this amazing uh, uh, church and this um, uh, amazing mission group that's going out and sharing the, sharing the gospel with the world. And you go in and you save thousands of people every day. God's not going to love you anymore because of it. God's not going to love you any more than he does right now if you go out and you get rid of all the things that cause your life to be uh, in, redirected from him. There's nothing we can do in our life to make God love us more because God loves us in a magnificent way that we can't even describe. But let me, let me flip it the other way. 
There's nothing you can do that's going to make God love you any less than he loves you right now. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. We can turn our back, we can go, and we can be the blasphemers that Stephen was claimed to be. We can turn our back on Christ for years and years and preach against him. But God still loves us the same amount, magnificently. You see, there's one word that describes that, and that's grace. This grace is, is, is hard to describe. But if we visualize it in a way that God loves us to the highest extent at all times, there's nothing that can bring it down. And it's already at its highest point. That's grace. God's love is magnificent to the point that he would be willing to give his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf so that we could be in his presence. Because without that happening, we couldn't. We couldn't even be around him. See, there was a price we had to pay for the sin that we had. And in, in God's presence, we can't, we can't even be around him. So something had to pay that price. And that was Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And when Jesus died, if we believe, whosoever believes, whosoever will be saved. So if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, that eternal separation from God is no longer. Do you have to go and die a martyr's death? No, not at all. Do you have to go and do something extravagant, amazing, so that people still thousands of years from now are going to be talking about you? No. You have to love Christ. And your love, action will follow. And all that doesn't matter. But the love has to happen first before that happens. So I challenge you and encourage you today not to leave this place without fully committing to this thing called love and this commitment to Jesus Christ. Because when that commitment happens, hope and grace follows. To whosoever believes.